0: You're listening to a message from Oaks Church, Brooklyn. Our longing is to see heaven come to earth in our city. For more information on our church and community, please visit oaksbk.church. Matthew two, verse eleven. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. They opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Thanks be to God. This is the word of the Lord. How are we doing? Hopefully, hopefully full on Thanksgiving the best holiday of the year in my opinion, but I guess that's the wrong thing to say on the first week of Advent. Mm. I apologize. (laughs) Uh, This is indeed the first week of Advent, the beginning of the church calendar. This is uh, the time known, the Christmas season uh, for those who aren't in the church. It's the time of, you know, pumpkin spice lattes become peppermint lattes and uh, Die Hard, uh, the best Christmas movie uh, is watched in houses all around. Thank you. I see that hand. Um, guys, I was home this past weekend with my family and uh, thinking about Christmas and, uh, as it was approaching and there's this moment that is like pretty dear to my childhood and you probably won't find this uh, story or as amusing as I do, but uh, when I was a kid, my dad was prolific for, like, filming, like, everything. He even had um, a, a pseudonym, it was the Roving Reporter. And so the Roving Reporter would just, like, go and film all our, like, vacations and stuff. But then the Roving Reporter would also, like, film our, like, Christmas, the night before Christmas, and like, the reading of the story and stuff. And so there's this one year where uh, my family, if you imagine, we're, we're kind of sitting around Uh, my dad's in like the wingtip chair and my mom's propped and we're like a little chocolate Norman Rockwell painting like we're just like sitting at my dad listening to him read the Christmas story and the the camera is like kind of like right here as I am and uh and my dad finishes reading the story and when you watch the tape he kind of just like reads it and then he like says his prayer and then he just looks up and he just goes well lord uh, we thank you for this day and it, the way it strikes you when you see it and I knew you wouldn't, it wouldn't hit you the way it hits me but it's so funny when you watch it because it seems like my dad is about to send this tape to Jesus you know like it's like a video for him like how we send like you know kids like, write this letters to Christmas to Santa and they can put it in the mailbox I just always have this picture of Jesus like giving this VHS uh, and just like watching it and just like oh thanks Boatwrights really love you guys um uh, my family we did try to make Jesus like the center of the season. Um uh, but there was a lot of competition with that obviously, you know, especially for me as a kid because this was the time where you potentially got like that come up and that like nice pair of Jordans or in my case the Fubu jacket I always wanted. Um and it, It never really happened because uh, my family, you know, we we weren't a rich family, and and so uh, that created a lot of conflict for me, actually, because I knew my parents desired so much to treat my sister and I with all that they could, um, but I also knew that we didn't have a lot, and so the Christmas time, the Advent season, always carried this veneer of, like, conflict and, like... Weirdness, because I saw my parents um, stressed about how they were going to give us a good Christmas, right? And so at a very young age, I just kind of stopped asking for things because I, I just didn't want that pain. I didn't want that stress on them. So for me, honestly, the, the Advent season has always been one in a context of like brokenness that has enveloped the season. And so I actually want to kind of start with that place as we enter Advent to acknowledge what has the Advent season been centered around for you? Now, for some of you maybe like me, like Jesus is the reason for the season. You know, I had to stick that in there. Uh, and like, you're like all about it. You've got your Advent calendar. You've got your candle. You're like ready. You're like first in line for the Advent service next week. Uh, and that is like the moment, like this is what it's about. It's Jesus. And for others, maybe it's just kind of the cultural milieu, the, you know, the, the tree at Rockefeller Center, going ice skating and peppermint lattes and, and you know, curling up under the blankets and watching Christmas movies. Maybe that is what this season is centered around for you. Maybe for some of you, it's kind of like me, it's a little bit of pain right? Lack of family, too much family, the weight that gets put on others, the kind of like expectations of the season, it can all feel a bit heavy. It can all remind you of things that you don't have or always wish you did or what you can't provide and wish you could. So maybe the season for you is not a joyful time the biblical narrative when it comes to Advent, this is no profound thought, has always been centered around Jesus. But more than that, the biblical narrative in totality has always centered around Jesus. Like, obviously we're aware of that in the Gospels and the New Testament where we have the life of Jesus and then we have the epistles uh, unpacking uh, the life of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus for the early church. But even the Old Testament Two is centered around Jesus. If you look at the Old Testament, there are over 300 prophecies that are fulfilled and speak to Jesus. The prophecies cover everything from his genealogy to his birth, including the location and the people present. His life and ministry, including the focus, the method of how he would do it, where it would start. There are prophecies on his death, the manner of. There's the prophecies on his resurrection. All this is foreshadowed in the Old Testament text. Author Glenn Scribner says that Jesus is either patterned, promised, or presented on almost every page of the Old Testament. Now, in the New Testament, we have uh, obviously the Gospels, but particularly we have the Apostle John, who writes his Gospel to emphasize and to tell us that Jesus is both God and the Messiah, the promised one. And so he begins his Gospel with the declaration that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the word was God. It starts, everything starts with God, with Jesus, the word. A little later in verse 14, Eugene, Eugene Peterson translates in the message. He says, the word becomes flesh and blood. It moved into the neighborhood and we saw the glory with our own eyes. This is all pointing to Jesus. This is true in Jesus' time, where John the Baptist, his cousin, who was born before him, testifies in verse 15, he says, this is the one of whom I spoke about, speaking of Jesus, when I said he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. John is saying, this is the one that all of this has always been about, Jesus. I think this is the place that we have to start for Advent, that it is paramount that we examine what this season means for us and beyond this season, what our lives mean for us, what they're centered around. And then we have to make sure, I think if we're going to live a full life, that the answer to that question is Jesus, that we adopt the posture of John to move ourselves out of the center of the story and realize that all of this, all of that, all of the church calendar, all of who we are has always and will always be only about him. The, the reality is, we don't have the gravity to be the center of the universe, let alone much anything else. And the Advent story that we want to enter in over the next four weeks, all that will fall apart if the ark ends with us. If the story is that God comes. And the story of the gospel is that there's coming uh, a Jesus and he's coming and he's coming and then finally he comes and then he came and so that then you could be born and then like you could have life. If that's the story, if we're the end of the story, well then it doesn't hold much, right? Because we eventually will pass from this world and we'll enter into the glory of Jesus. But it has to be about him. Jesus was born in the world not for us, He was born in the world to declare the glory of to declare the glory of God. Hard stop. That is the point. He comes, the baby comes, not to be our spiritual boyfriend and to find us and to make us happy, but to declare and reveal the glory of God. But our blessing is that He achieves this in by living a perfect life and dying a blameless death so that the very ones who crucified and denied him could live, you and I included. We see this in John 17. So Jesus has his Passover meal, and he has all his disciples in his upper room, and he breaks the bread, and he gives the wine, and then later he gets down, and he washes each of their feet. And then he goes, and he he starts teaching them. He starts telling them about why he is here, and what he has done. And at one point, Jesus, the scriptures say, John says, in chapter 17, that he looks to the sky and he says this prayer. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all the people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Here's the kicker. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had before the world began. Jesus says in verse 4, I brought you glory on earth. That's what I came to do, bring you glory. And I did that, that subordinate clause, by finishing the work you gave me to do. Why is this important? I think we have to start here because all things pass away, except death and taxes. Those will probably make it into heaven. Um, No, we do know that those two will fade. But like good things, like Ecclesiastes tells, good things eventually fade. And the bad things, they fade too, but then they come again because we live in an entropic world that's always heading towards chaos. It's currently in its current state, always breaking down. And when the bad things happen, we lose our illusion of control. Like the mask is taken off, Right? I thought that, like, I controlled my world, and then I had a child, and I realized that I control nothing, and I, now, my purpose serves to, like, teach someone how to use the potty, and it's not the grand delusions that I once had, right? But more than that, there's always these, like, tough things, like, I go home and I look at the age. Maybe this happened to you as you go home for the holidays and you see the age of your parents. You see the effects of time and you realize like, whoa, there's going to be a day where we don't get to gather around this table like we will. And that's going to be really hard. And when those things come, you realize like, man, I don't control much. I don't have much. And when we lose that illusion, it makes us feel very alone. We actually kind of see ourselves and the world, and we can feel really lost. If we're the apex of existence, then we are lost. There's not a lot to be hopeful for because we've seen what brokenness does to us, we've seen man's inhumanity to man. And so, the good news of Advent. The message is this, it's a plain one, that we are not alone. For those who have been waiting, here he is, we have a God. For those who are lost, the one who seeks has come. For those who are trapped in darkness, he reveals himself in marvelous light. Christ the babe, as Calvin often wrote, comes and clothed in the gospel. And the gospel is this, that there is a God and he is good. But don't, show, don't tell me that, show me that. So how do we know that he is good? Because while we were still sinners, he died for us. Because it is about him and his glory, his glory never fades. It never ends. It will last when this world goes away. It lasts forever because it's always been forever. And so when the story becomes about his glory and not about us, well then the ark requires us that we bend towards it and it not bend toward us. Amen. This is why we first light the candle of hope. Advent is where hope, peace, joy, and love meet because God is all those things. He is all those things. Because what you will find, the truth is that once you behold the babe and once you come into Jesus and you give your life to Him, if all this is about that, well, then the brokenness doesn't end. Because I don't know about you, but I've been a Christian for almost over 20 years. And some of the darkest times of my life happened after I accepted Jesus. And so if if the light of the world comes, and I still remain in brokenness and something is wrong, but if the light of the world comes to tell me that brokenness will be here, but it is growing brighter and brighter that I can move towards the light, that I can move towards the glory of God, that is what this story is about. Well, now there's something here. Now that gives me hope, in the darkness because I know it is about Jesus and what he is doing. It is about the glory of a good God and not about the happiness of a fickle person. We are but dust and water, but glory and all-consuming power comes an approachable babe. And that imbued worth and purpose makes us more than we could ever achieve on our own. We are not inherently Wonderful, what makes us wonderful is that the God who is wonderful calls us blessed and calls us beloved. He gives us his glory that we may become his righteousness. And this will be and always has been good news to all people, near and far. Our series text focuses on some obscure characters who play a prominent role in the Advent story, our wise men, and they're relatively unknown. If we go into that Matthew passage with our love, uh, I just want to hit it again. It says, after Jesus was born in Judea during the time of King Herod, the Magi came from the east of Jerusalem and they asked, where's the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and we have come to worship him. And after they had heard the king, they went on their way, verse nine, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, much has been mythologized and speculated about these men and the number of them. Turns out there may not have even been three. They could have been up to 12. I'm sorry, Uh, all your nativity scenes, you can still keep it. There's actually little we know about them scripturally, but there's some that we know scripturally, and there's some we know a little extra-biblically, but here's what we know about the Magi. The word itself is Latin. It's the plural of of a word borrowed from the Greek in our text, uh, magos, and that Greek word is derived from a Persian word referring to a priestly cast of people called the Zoroastrians, who were followers of Zoroaster, if any of you are expecting and looking for a name. Zoroaster was an ancient Iranian religious leader uh, who lived sometime around like the 6th to 7th century BC. Um, We don't quite know. But his followers of Zoroaster were known throughout antiquity for being scientists, astrologers, and, and conjurers. Now, scripturally, the word is predominantly translated magician or sorcerer. Essentially, these were, like, learned men who basically studied the world, studied the stars, and they had some competency at producing, like, hard-to-comprehend phenomena. Like, you know, think of uh, if you were a kid and, uh, and your grandpa pulled that quarter, quarter from behind your ear, or, like, the first time your mom dropped, like, uh, uh, the Mentos and the Coke, and you're like, what is this? Like, black magic, you know? Uh, these men basically served this function. They were able to produce things that the common person couldn't understand. And so they had a status of, of magicians, of, of, of wise men. They knew things and how the natural world worked. Now, these men were in Persia and they're first mentioned biblically uh, in Daniel uh, chapter two. So if you remember Daniel, this is prophet of God. He is taken away during the Babylonian exile. He's coming up under Nebuchadnezzar. Him and his friends Sadrak, Meshach, and Abednego. And Daniel is kind of in this lineage of or has been adopted into these wise men. And there comes this point where King Nebuchadnezzar has this dream that really troubles him. And so he goes to his wise men, these conjurers, and he says, Hey, I want you to tell me my dream. I want you to tell me what my dream means. But also, I'm not gonna tell you my dream. So I want you to tell me my dream and then tell me what it means. And the wise men are like, Well, we can't really do that, and they're like, he's like, well, you call yourself wise men, you propose to be these like masters of the universe who can conjure. So here's the deal: either you do it, or I will kill you and your whole family. To which there are they there's anxiety because they can't in fact do this. And so the day is coming where all these wise men are going to be put to death, and Daniel hears of this, and so he approaches uh, the Lord. He calls his friends and he says, hey, we've got to do something. Our lives are on the line. Here's what we need to do. Let's pray to God and let's ask him. And so they pray to God for help and God reveals to Daniel the dream of Nebuchadnezzar and its interpretation. So Daniel then gets word to the king that he doesn't need to kill anyone. He will come and give the interpretation. And so Daniel does and he makes very clear in chapter 2 he says no man can do what you ask but the god who all this is about the god my god as a hebrew he is the one who has given me the answer that i'm going to give you until so he tells nebuchadnezzar his dream nebuchadnezzar's anger is satiated and all who are, all the wise men can live and in fact daniel this hebrew this israelite this one in the lineage of jesus he is actually made head over all these wise men, these followers of Zoroaster. And this is actually also happening at the time where uh, Zoroaster is coming to prominence and uh, his people are are serving in these roles. And so uh, there's this unity, there's this amazing, I think, historical point where the Hebrew people and the Zoroaster people collide with Daniel. Why is that important? Well, it, it raises the question to me, these people not being Hebrew, not being Israelites, why do they care about the baby Jesus? Why do they come? Well, the scriptures tell us that there's a prophecy, but it doesn't tell us what exactly was the prophecy that led them uh, to come and see the newborn king. But there was some early church speculation that the prophecy is the one found in Numbers 24 and 17, where it says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. Now, what does all this mean? What does this mean for us? Well, here's why I think these purposes matter. We can't definitively say what drove the wise men to uh, see the baby Jesus. But we do know that they weren't of this faith. But they had become convinced that a prominent ruler had been born. And they were driven to give him honor and worship. And we know that they were men being led by God to come out and worship. We see this in the text in Matthew, where even after they've met Herod and he tells them to come and to give the location of the child for his nefarious purposes, they have a dream and God tells them not to go back to, to Pharaoh or to Herod. And so they then end up going home another way. So they're being led by God to come and worship. And this is really poignant because these men leave everything and they set out on a dangerous journey. They travel a long way. They do not come at the, the manger. These men come somewhere uh, between the, in the first two years of Jesus' life, we know, because this is why uh, Herod chooses to kill all Israelite boys under two because of the timing. And so they, they set out when the star arrives and they take this long journey ladled with supplies and also these gifts that are very valuable through a dangerous time. And so they're doing this because when you believe an ultimate ruler has come, you risk it all to cast your life. You risk it all to place your allegiance. This is why they didn't come empty-handed. Gift-giving was intrinsic to the ancient Persian life. And while anything could be given as a gift, an appropriate gift, particularly from a subject to a king, was one that served as an acknowledgement of power and a, and a sign of submission or loyalty. And so these wise men, however many there were, made this trek to this house to bow before a little child and to offer him a sign, an acknowledgement of his power and a sign of their submission and loyalty. That's what they did. And that, for me, arises a question. What do you do? What do you make of the newborn babe? Who is Jesus to you? Have you been convinced like these wise men that this is the start of a new administration, the king of kings? And if so, have you offered to acknowledge his power and show your submission and loyalty? And what would be even good enough to do such a thing? Well, over the next few weeks, we are embarking on a series called What's Myrrh Got to Do With It? For some of you, you're like, Oh. Things have changed. <laughs> I just had to. It just like... We will be exploring the gifts of the Magi as instructed to the gifts that we can bring to Jesus. The gold, the frankincense, and the myrrh, each of them uh, fanciful gifts in their own right, but also symbolically represent some calls that I think of what it looks like for us to acknowledge the power of Jesus, to us to acknowledge the centrality of Jesus with our lives, and for us to show our submission and fealty to Him. And so we're going to embark on unpacking what that looks like, because if Jesus put aside the majesty of heaven to come as helpless babe, if He came to make our lives a hallmark greeting card, then I think whatever follows is that whatever you decide... Whatever makes you feel good should be a fair game, and whatever you don't, whatever makes you unhappy, you should just, like, pack it up, ship it to Miri Kondo for disposal. But if instead the king of the king, the Lord of lords, came to declare his glory and that of the father, then the question becomes, is your life doing the same? If the story is about him and who we say he is, then what do we bring to such a being? What gifts do you offer the God made manifest. The band's going to come back up. I hope that you'll join us as we unpack these things. But for today, I want to give a simple invitation that we just offer up our praise today. That we declare the goodness of the Lord that we revel in the hope that has come, that there is a God and he is good. So let's acknowledge, we start with acknowledgement. If you've been in uh, tracking with us during the good way, you know that each session we kind of just start with putting 10 toes on the ground and acknowledging where we are. And then from that place, we perceive the invitations of God forward in each of these practices. And so for today, let's acknowledge where we are before the baby king. Who is Jesus to you? Take that with you this week. The band's going to begin to play and we're going to move into a time of response. We're going to have these prayer rugs open and again, as I say, these are nothing magical. Um, But they're just a place simply where you can come and do with your body what your heart is doing, where you can come and move and say to the Lord, bow before the newborn king. And then also there'll be people who come uh, to meet you in prayer. As we said, for some of you, this may be a time of pain this Advent season. This is the start of how you're going to make it through the next four weeks, five weeks. And we want to be a people that journey together that you don't have to bear your burdens alone, and so there'll be people who will come to simply listen and to pray to take all these things to the one who is able to do something about them. but the reason why we have these people here is because they've uh, we want to make sure that there are safe people and people you can listen to, but also we are all priests, prophets, kings, and queens with the ability to administer the presence and peace of Jesus to one another. And so, I encourage you, if the person next to you, if you want to pray for them, offer a simple prayer. If you want to just listen, then that is, can be prayer in and of itself. The most important prayer is the one in which we don't talk. But we listen. So we're going to pray, we're going to worship, we're going to kneel. And all of this, we ponder the question what do we make of Jesus? And if He is who He says He is, what is required of us? Let's pray. We come before You, Jesus, and we acknowledge that all of this is about You and none of this is about us. We are bit players in Your story. But what a fanciful and magical and beautiful thing that you reveal your glory by loving us. That you found the power and the majesty and the due glory of heaven, not something to be grasped, but you surrendered it and humbled yourself to come in the form of a baby, to allow to allow us to put you to death and all of us you did so that we could know that you are good and you are worthy of kingship. That you are worthy of worship. That you are worthy of being followed. So would you meet us here today, Jesus? By the power of your spirit, would you open our hearts and reveal to us What exactly we've been centering our lives on. And from there, would you open our ears to perceive your invitations into the newness and the fullness of life. Amen. Come and respond as you will.